Page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Welcome back to Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, and this, of course, you know this by now, it's the world's first podcast that I host. Uh, Today's chat is a really fun one. Uh, Before I jump into introducing it, I just want to say this is the first episode, I think, since I was back east reading some poems uh, in a bookstore and at a university and just meeting people and saying hi, and it was a lot of fun. Um, I feel very much, and I recorded this interview Uh, after I got back, but I feel very much, since I got back, uh, inspired to return to writing and and focus more on writing and try to make it more of a daily practice, Um, which which is a big shift for me, as you know, if you've listened to this show before. So I appreciate everybody who came out and chatted with me, whether you were at a reading or we just met up or whatever. It meant a lot to be able to see so many familiar writing faces that I haven't met before, um, and it was just very cool. Okay, today, I don't want to preface this too much and make it too big that it's hard for the interview to live up to, but I will say this. Page Fright is becoming a mystery podcast. You know this if you've listened to the last couple episodes, because I said in an interview with Natalie Lim in our last episode that Chris Banks's book, Deep Fake Serenade, had rhyming poems in it. Now, you're like, Andrew, we heard you apologize for this a thousand times last time you put an episode out. Why are you doing this again? The reason I am doing this again, folks, is to tell you, if you are a fan of closure, like I am, you are going to love this episode because we get to the damn bottom of where the heck I thought those rhyming poems were in Chris Banks' repertoire. Um, Spoiler alert, we figure out that Chris has written rhyming poems before, and we figure out where exactly that is. Um, So do listen in, tune in for the interview, you already made it this far, so why leave now? Um, And we'll get to the bottom of that, among some other poetic exploits. I'm excited to talk to Chris. Um, I had a really good time, and I will say... I know I I bring a lot of authors on this show who share similarities, and if you're a listener, you probably have a really good idea. If you're a steady listener, or even just if you looked at the list of guests I've had on the show, you have a great idea of what I like to read. Um, It's poetry, it's largely narrative poetry, uh, and it's mainly Canadian narrative poetry. Um, That being said, sometimes I step outside of that. Now, Chris Banks, today's guest, writes narrative poetry as well, but he also does some other crazy poetic stuff. Uh, that really got me thinking and writing in new ways. Uh, the past couple of weeks have been filled with me experimenting and trying to replicate a little bit of Chris's style. And, and what I particularly enjoy about Chris's work, I think I mentioned this, is that it takes a couple reads. Now, his poems are not dense in the sense that they will be alienating with their language and their density and off-putting. They are full of detail and full of twists and turns and things that keep you guessing. And they really just blew me away. The fact that this is Chris's sixth book of poems made me so happy, not because Chris has had a long and illustrious writing career, which is fantastic, but because selfishly I get to go back and read five more books of his work. Uh, And I'm so excited to do just that because his poems are so cool. So without further ado, let me tell you a little bit about Chris Banks, and then you'll hear some of his poems and some questions that I asked him. Chris Banks is a Canadian poet and author of six collections of poems, most recently Deep Fake Serenade, out with Nightwood Editions in the fall of 2021, which was the subject of today's episode. His first full-length collection, Bonfires, was awarded the Jack Chalmers Award for Poetry by the Canadian Authors Association in 2004. Bonfires was also a finalist for the Gerald Lampert Award for Best First Book of Poetry in Canada. His poetry has appeared in the New Quarterly, Arc Magazine, The Antigonish Review, Event, The Malahat Review, Griffel, American Poetry Journal, Prism International, and a bunch of other publications. He lives and writes in Kitchener, Ontario. Here I am chatting with Chris Banks. Okay, so uh, today's guest, I almost said this month's guest, this podcast is becoming somewhat monthly, um, although I don't have a regular schedule for it, but today's guest uh, wrote a book of poetry that I'm really excited to talk about. Chris Banks is here. Chris, how's it going? It's going really well. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. 
Yeah, I picked up your book. Uh, I was trying to remember this morning, like, who did I see post about your book? Was it you that I saw post about your book? Was it a friend? I don't know. I honestly, I haven't been able to track the origin of how I came across your book, but right. I loved it. So I'm so glad that I did. Um, and yeah, I, I want to get into it and ask you all these questions. But usually at the start of the episode, I'll ask for a reading so that the sure. listener can get acquainted with your work. Could I get you to read a poem for us? Yes, I'll, I'll read Ink Blots from uh, Deep Fake Serenade. Let me just uh, thumb to the right page here. Okay. Ink blots. I've measured out my life in K cups. Please add snow shoveling, foreign wars, daddy long legs, vowels to the list. Rain fell yesterday like a ritual. My children are scared of thunderstorms. A golden retriever is missing, says a flyer stapled to a hydropole. God is lost. Life feels unscripted. I say rivers fauna skyscraper expecting my hands my mind to gift wrap it all into meaning my language is tired of looking for a common denominator behind every word the sound of a hinge opening behind things entering my eyes a bridge to understanding press an ear to my chest to hear a hive of contradictions honey is the essence of wildflowers Blood is the essence of life owed to a massive star at the center of our galaxy. I remember this despite failing astrology class, despite passing a lie detector. The ink blots prove I'm a good person. Radio telescopes probe the universe for mysterious chatter, like these sentences full of fundraisers and floodwaters, love and work retirements, quasars and champagne. The art of living is seeing each other beyond addictions and condos. I've waited my whole life to emanate a brightness, to wear a halo of knowing. Outside phenomena and inside impulses collide. I'm the sparks flying. Awesome. Thank you for reading that for us. Um, this awesome. is a really good poem to start with because it's one of the ones I had flagged and it's one of the ones that I flagged the second time I read the book. And the reason oh, I bring perfect. that up is um, I I talk to a lot of poets on this show and, and typically a compliment I'll be able to give somebody is, oh, you know, I read your book in one sitting or, you know, I read your book in, in one go. And uh, I have to be honest, Chris, that wasn't the case with your book. I really had to dig through these poems because I found there was so much to mine in such a short space in each right. of these poems that it really merited a second reading and a third reading even. Um, and I really enjoyed going back and kind of picking out gems that I didn't see the first time through. And this poem was one of those poems where I really found that there was a lot that I didn't pick up the first time. Um, on that note, I guess, uh, one of the things I did pick up when I went through again was noticing a little bit more about the line breaks in that specific poem. Now, I won't right. ask you, you know, to run us through a line by line reading of that poem, but I do want to know, like, what makes a good line break for you? How do you know where to end a line? Oh, my goodness. That's a good question. Uh, let me just quickly look at this one. For me, uh, <laughs> line breaks are really important in the sense that I tend to make my, you know, write these sort of long rangy poems, but the lines themselves are pretty uniform in the way they at least look, Not maybe not in so syllables. I used to count syllabics uh, in my book, uh, Winter Cranes, for instance, my third book, I did that. About 40, 45% of that book is written in perfect syllabics, but I don't do that anymore. That seems like a lot of work and less fun than... <laughs> Um, what I'm doing now. So yeah, I just tend to um, uh, just the way they look on the page, I tend to try to keep them pretty uniform. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So what what I realized with the line breaks a lot, and like, I can go back to that poem, but there's there's a ton of them where sort of like where the line breaks changes the meaning of the sentence that composes that line and whatever lines may follow. Uh, that was one of the things that I really was interested in and was really kind of taken aback by was how many kind of like almost double meanings there were that were made more um, possible for me to find by the place that the line breaks. So that's kind of what I was getting at. I really, I really appreciated the way that you ended the lines and ended the poems too, which I guess brings me to another question. Sure. Um, I asked you what makes a good line break. I'm asking you very generic poetry questions to start us off, but what mm -hmm. makes a good ending to a poem? Because I love how the poems end in this book. Uh, I, I go back to what sort of Merwin said about poems, you know, uh, the poems, you know, should begin in delight and 
and end in 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 wisdom or did frost say that um uh i think merwin said you know if the poem doesn't begin in delight it'll never end in wisdom and i think that's hmm. what it's about for me i really want to be surprised by my poems right to the very end uh so i think you know that idea of a, maybe a little epiphany at the end uh is always uh delightful for me as as the poet and i think for a reader as well yeah and that was one of the things that i i really noticed in your work too is often uh, there's a real balance in this book at least uh mm -hmm. in sort of searching for answers and and showing them to the reader as well um, yes. I, I want to ask, based on just the way that your poems are structured, because there really is a lot of, it feels like searching going on as a reader, and I imagine as a writer of these poems. Um, I wanted to know, kind of when you sit down to write a poem, like the ones in Deep Fake Serenade, is there sort of an agenda to what you want to write? Or do you just sit down with a pen and, and let it go and search as you're writing? I think that is the agenda, is to just sit down and wait for the poem to arrive uh, you know, through me, uh, I think that's become much, much more important than uh, when I was younger and when I would just sort of mull over an idea or a title for a very long time, almost taking notes in my head and then uh, begin uh, to shape the poem into like eight line stanzas or, you know, five line stanzas or four line stanzas or what have you. And now for me, I, I feel like I'm much more concerned with uh, just creating a daily writing practice as much as I can. I don't write every day, but I try to. And waiting for the poem to arrive and, and going in different directions. Uh, you know, I read that book, um, uh, The Art of Recklessness by Dean Young, and I highly recommend that book. And I read that book at a time when uh, I really was facing a sort of crisis of voice. I was in my 40s. My marriage was ending. I was not enjoying what I was writing at the time. And uh, I was had already mined a lot of childhood and a lot of mm. early my early 20s. And so once I realized that anything could go into a poem, that really, really changed my practice. And all of a sudden, I'm writing these wonderful poems that you see now in midlife action figure and this new book, A Deep Fake Serenade. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask about this too, because I did read some of your earlier poems too. Mm -hmm. to, to be honest with you, this is the first book of yours that I came across. Um, right. So I'm, I'm relatively new to, to writing and, and honestly reading poetry too. Um, so that's probably why. But uh, I really enjoyed this book. And so I went back and looked at some earlier poems too. And I did yes. notice kind of what you were talking about in terms of like a, a shift in focus on the content in yes. your writing. Um, and so, uh, okay, this, I, I have to ask a very selfish question because sure. my writing, I'm 25. I yeah. am at a point where what I've got to write about is mostly my childhood, mostly growing up That's and right. mostly trying to figure out what identity I am and what it is in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how do you then move from writing on that topic I don't know. It sounds like to me, it was very similar to what I do in that it's been a very repetitive focus on like adolescence and youth and like growing up and finding out who I am, yeah. which is still something that's ongoing for me. But how did you begin to look at other things as well and, and consider them in your work? That's a great question. And I think for you being 25, you're right where you're supposed to be. You're writing the poems that you're supposed to write. Uh, and that and that sort of pull of childhood in that sort of nostalgia of childhood is really um, it's like the Edenic uh, myth. Right. <laughs> I think Larry <laughs> Levis, the poet, said, you know, childhood is is the Garden of Eden, essentially. You know, it's this thing that we've been um, expelled from and never can go back to. And I thought that mm. was really wise and it really explained why so many young poets are pulled to that content. Uh, for me, I just ran out of things, you know, after, okay. after about three and a half books, I just was like, what, what else can I write about? And, and of course, that's the moment where your imagination says, well, let's do this, you know, and it goes mm. off into strange new territory. Yeah. Was, was there anybody that you were reading at the time that allowed you to kind of access those new subjects and, and that yeah. new focus? 
Oh, absolutely. So I'm thinking of uh, a lot of American poets like uh, Kim Adonisio. I'm thinking Bob Hickok, the American poet. I'm thinking about the surrealist poet, uh, Dean Young, especially. You know, it, it's funny because when I was a younger poet, I really didn't understand Dean Young, really didn't understand the appeal of it. And right when I was supposed to, uh, you know, figure out a new way to write all of a sudden I, I got it and and it just opened me right up it opened the door and I walked hmm. through it interesting um yeah. okay I okay so I have to ask you a question from my last episode's guest uh sure. and normally I would do this a little later but there's a reason I'm bringing it up early and that's because there's a story behind this question Chris okay. um so last episode I was talking to Natalie Lim she's another young Vancouver poet um whose work I really admire and we were talking about both of us wishing we were able to write rhyming poems. Um, right. Now, rhyming poems seem to, in a way, have gone out of fashion. Maybe internal rhyme is still hanging around a little bit, but that very like structured, rigid way of rhyming uh, mm -hmm. is just not something you find anymore. But we were talking about it, and for some reason, I thought I had read a rhyming poem in Deep Fake Serenade. Can you confirm for me, first of all, there are no rhyming poems in Deep Fake Serenade, are there? There are no rhyming poems in Deep Fake Serenade, but I did put a poem on Twitter about a month ago that I had written uh, that does rhyme. You don't hear the oh. rhyme when you read it, but that but there are end rhymes to it. And those, of course, are my favorite type of poems that rhyme, where there are rhymes, which you can see when you go back into the poem, uh, but... Uh, when you read it aloud, you don't hear the rhymes. And that's a poem called Hit Parade that I just finished, uh, which sort of began on the occasion of Meatloaf's death. And, uh, right. and, and it's got Cardi B in there. It's got all kinds yep. of fun pop culture references in it. Okay. Yes. I, I read this poem. So maybe that's what I was thinking of. I, think I felt horrible. I, yeah. I felt horrible for being like, oh, yeah, you got to check out Deep Fake Serenade because it's got rhyming poems. Aww. And then I, if anybody went there, I was like, oh, no, that's not that's not right. Yeah. So uh, that is what I read, because I do remember reading that poem yeah. and enjoying it. And so I at least got the name right. I just didn't get the you place. Did. Right? You did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Natalie's question, Chris, was and now we kind of have a bit of an answer to it, but I'll ask you for a little more. Do you write rhyming poems? And if so, uh, I guess what I'll tack on to her question is, how is that different from writing a non-rhyming poem? Right. Okay. So the first question is, I do write rhyming poems occasionally, occasionally mm -hmm. just to challenge myself. And as I get older, uh, you know, Deep Fake Serenade is my sixth book. I actually have a seventh book finished. Uh, it's going to come out with Nightwood Editions in 2024. Um, I'm thinking ahead to like an eighth book, a ninth book, a 10th book. And what do I want to do? And I, th I have a feeling like I really want to start challenging myself even further than I have before. And so I think you will see at least uh, a section, a section of poems that are, are rhyming poems that do not rhyme sometime in the future, or at least I hope so. And the difference between a rhyming poem and a non-rhyming po poem, at least for me, is it's like a fence that you create right in the poem and you, you you're sort of creating this restraint uh, around your imagination and it, you're painting yourself into a corner and you have to find a way out. That's what rhyme does. Uh, and of course that's can be really exciting too. You know, like I, I was, had been reading um, someone named John Hodgson and he wrote these lovely rhyming poems that of course don't rhyme. And I was like, oh, I want to learn how to do this. So I wrote this poem <laughs> called Hit Parade. And yeah, it's fantastic. It turned out really well. I'm really happy with it. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that poem. Uh, if you are listening to this, you should go to Chris's Twitter. I imagine you probably have to dig back a little bit now to find it. Uh, yeah, it's but it was somewhere. Yeah, it's somewhere on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it was a very cool poem. It's it's out there in the Twitterverse. Uh, you can go and find it. Um, but yeah, and and Chris, um, just to jump back to your book here, yeah. I mean, um, we'll we'll shift away from talking about rhyme for a moment. Although maybe we'll come sure. back. Who knows? Um, one of the things I really connected with in your book, uh, 
Well, first off, one of the things I really appreciate about your writing is the inventiveness and the creativity. And I know like the whole point of being a writer and being a poet is to be creative and to be inventive and find new ways to say things. Um, But that's something that I felt was just really well done in this book. And it particularly, yeah, and and it particularly became foregrounded for me uh, when you were talking about addiction and sobriety. Um, This is a new world for me. I am, I haven't drank in a year. And uh, that's, yeah, it's very cool, um, but it's very new. And I am learning more about it. And so I've been reading a lot about it. And the reality is much like a love poem, I feel like a sobriety poem, there's a certain structure to it that is difficult to escape when you're writing it. But I found that a lot of your poems do escape that structure and, and it's very creative and inventive. So I was wondering kind of like, how do you approach writing on a topic that is, you know, well discussed, like like sobriety yeah. and addiction, or even a love poem. And how do you try to create it in a sort of inventive way? I I think that's really interesting that you you uh, sort of um, uh, put it that way. For me, uh, you know, being a sober person who doesn't drink anymore, I've been so- sober from alcohol for six and a half years, almost seven years, and. Uh, wow you know, it's a really important part of my life uh, Mm -hmm. was sort of acknowledging that I had an alcohol dependence uh, disorder and that it was never going to go away and try Mm -hmm. as I might, if I stop for three months and then pick it up again, it's just going to end in a bad night, you know, or two or three or so forth. And I -hmm. just was, you know, really wrecking havoc with my life and with my mental health, of course, was bottoming out about the same time. And I wish it was really hard thing to give up because I really enjoy drinking. Um, But, you know, I think for me going forward and what helped me with recovery was just the idea of being completely honest with everybody. And that included my writing. And so I was really important that I make mention of sobriety or or, you know, uh, sort of allude to bad nights when I was a drinker. And, uh, you know, I have that poem Chardonnay in um, in uh, Defects Serenade, which really approaches the, the whole topic of sobriety head on. Uh, but then a lot of the poems, like a little reference to sobriety or, you know, sort of bad nights will just slip into a poem. And that feels right to me. Uh, I don't know mm. if there's any rhyme or reason for it, but, you know, I, I, again, I just go where the poem wants to go. Yeah. And I was thinking of Chardonnay when I yeah. thought of this question, sure. um, but, but yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think this is something that's, that I really appreciated and thought was interesting about your poems. And mm. honestly, I probably read a little too much into it, but um, I really enjoyed the fact that it was in most of the poems, a quick mention of, you know, like you said, a difficult night, a difficult yes. situation with sobriety. There's one about, I, I read a line this morning as I was rereading, I can't place the poem, but uh, sure. it was something to the extent of, you know, I didn't find religion until I stopped drinking, or there was something about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, finding God or something like that, um, that right. I'm completely butchering. But um, these little things that that were little thoughts that were added into here. I mean, I feel like when I write a poem, often I'm talking to myself. Um, yes. I know eventually somebody else is going to read it, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, you're talking to yourself. And when I'm talking to myself, I don't want the entire story, the entire narrative right. of what I'm putting down to be about sobriety and I think this is something that I really liked about your poems was that it wasn't like an overtaking direct address to this mm-hmm. as in you know this is a big part of the identity even though it may be um, but the fact that it was something you were able to you know mention here and there but not mm-hmm. have it dominate a poem I thought was really cool I don't know Oh, great thank you yeah I started writing um, you know the, my sort of poems about sobriety halfway through uh, the cloud versus uh, grand unification theory, my fourth book. And I remember, I think really the first poem I dealt with it openly. I, I, I think I made mention of, of AA or a friend in AA and uh, uh, was called selfie with 10,000 things. And I remember feeling like, okay, it's out there in the world now, you know, I'm sharing mm. this. And I, I remember feeling a, a real sense of relief 
Um, but you, you know, sobriety is a journey. The first couple of years is always a little uncomfortable. You know, when you go out to social situations and you see someone fiddling with their wine glass, it can leave you feeling a little uncomfortable or, you know, like that wine bottle over there singing my song, but you just sort of recenter yourself. And I, I think it took about three years for me to be really comfortable being in a bar again and, and, and just enjoying sobriety, you know, being able to have um, a non-alcoholic beer on occasion and, and not be feel triggered. Um, and so I'm in a much better headspace now. And I'm, I'm very thankful for being a sober person today. Yeah. And honestly, that's uh, a little, I feel like inspiring is maybe a cheesy word, but it's, it's relieving a little to hear that yeah. uh, the first little bit is the difficult part um, because that's where, that's where I'm at. And, and honestly, right. um, I can relate in a very small way to what you said about kind of publishing or putting out that first poem where you mm -hmm. mentioned AA. Um, yeah. For me, writing a poem about drinking was a first step to realizing that I had a bit of a dependency issue. Right. And then for me to say, okay, you know what, I need to stop drinking. I felt that sense of relief around like, uh, just saying, okay, this is, we're recognizing that this is what's going on and we're dealing yeah. with it and putting it out there and instead of keeping it all inside. And that, that felt really nice. And so I imagine writing that poem um, for me and maybe even for you as well with the poem about AA uh, or where you mention AA, it opens a bit of a gate to discussing and thinking about that more broadly. Um, I don't know. Was that kind of the case for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, and it, I and so many wonderful things have happened since I've been really open about my struggles with alcohol. You know, lots of poets across Canada have reached out and said, just read your book. And, you know, I'm a sober poet, too. And it's just been great that way, you know. Um, and so there, I feel like there's a real, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood of, of sober poets out there, you know, that maybe they don't wave the sober flag, but they're out there and they certainly let me know that they had read my work and appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, okay. I don't want to just, you know, yeah, we sure. talked about how, how sobriety was, you know, just a part of the work. So yeah. I don't want to make the whole interview sobriety. Um, maybe to launch us into a new topic, Chris, could I get you to read another poem for us? Absolutely. Here, what's another poem that I've chosen for you here? Let's look. <laughs> uh, all right. I've got one here. Oh, no soliciting. Let's read this one. Okay. So no soliciting. I can't remember the combination lock to civilization. I should climb more trees, fly more kites to stay closer to my inner child. My inner child eats all the cookies, quietly points to a no soliciting sign when I come calling. In the 70s, I wore flared jeans, rode a banana seat blue bicycle. It was easier to be astonished as a child. You were more aware of your heartbeat, clouds catalyzing into fantastic shapes your inability to fly. The road looked the same forward as it did backward. Adulthood is carrying a bag of darkness over a shoulder. Sometimes you stick a hand in it. You pull out a summer spent landscaping a golf course, a wedding photo, a five-week stint in rehab for a drinking problem. My inner child circling around me on his blue bicycle says, what's for dinner? I tell him my knees feel the weather more and more that death is coming up the aisle with her beverage cart and the plane will eventually go down in flames. He smiles, revving the little plastic motor sound attached to his handlebars. He tries to do a wheelie before disappearing forever, which reminds me I still cannot fly, no matter how much I wave my arms, attached as I am to gravel's anvil, to the past dead weight, to the knowledge every little thing won't let me go. This is, I think, a perfect poem to read, given what we've been talking about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, childhood and a reference to rehab as well for drinking. Yeah, yeah. all those things are in there. Um, I really like the line. I had this underlined when I read it. Adulthood is carrying a bag of darkness over a shoulder. Um, yeah. I thought that was so cool. And the idea of like just sticking a hand in and grabbing something every now and then, especially when I'm writing, I feel like that's what's going on. But again, maybe that's just the moment I'm at in my life. I don't know. Sure. Um, Okay, so I wanted to ask too, I mean, we talked a little bit about how your poems in this book have a very like searching feel to them. Um, 
I the other thing that really got me as a reader that I loved, I talk to poets a lot about how they lay out a collection. I will ask you about that in a moment, but Often what I say when I'm talking about that is I love how, you know, I'd turn the page and not expect the next poem to be what it was about uh, or be about what it was about. For me, this idea of turning uh, happens in your poems a lot, uh, just in individual poems and in a way that I was really fascinated with and taken aback by. So I'm wondering how you kind of balance having both like a focused message, because we talked about ending a poem on a message too, um, in a poem while simultaneously kind of like exploring multiple things and and having those turns. Right. Okay. So I think uh, Richard Hugo, the American poet, he wrote a really great uh, collection of essays that I recommend to any younger poet starting out. It's called The Triggering Town. It's a book of a collection of essays. And he said something, the more stable the base that you have for a poem, the the more you can fly from it. So if you have a really good idea for a poem or a really good theme or, you know, strong, dominant, a concrete image uh, to to work as your base in the poem. And I think in the poem I just read was this, I had this idea of talking to my inner child, right? So Mm -hmm. you start with that. And then you just kind of fly around it. I, I always sort of try to keep my triggering subjects in the periphery of my vision. I rarely try to um, meet them head on anymore because the poems become very narrative driven, uh, which is fine. And I, I love narrative poetry. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of, you know, people like Philip Levine, uh, poets, uh, you know, Sharon uh, uh, Olds, uh, things like that. But uh, our poets of that of that um, generation. And I certainly wrote my share of them, but now I, I'm just much more interested in writing poems that are um, full of mischief and, and surprises that, that hopefully, you know, will put a smile on the face of my uh, readers. That's, I was about to ask, as you were saying, you know, sure. uh, how, how do I consider my poems? Like not really about narrative. So what are they? I, I really like the idea as, as, describing your poems as full of mischief, I think is very fitting uh, because that's certainly the case. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with that idea of like the turning and shifting from idea to idea within a poem. And I think that's, I I really like how you described it as a flight too, because you know, the thing about a flight is you leave and you come back down. And I felt like in the poem you read and in a number of the poems in this book too, um, there aren't necessarily the loose ends that are left at the start of a poem when you come to the end, often, you know, the inciting question is answered or or that sort of, you know, reason we started the poem is come back to in a new light. And that's something that I mentioned only because it's something I aspire to in my own writing. And I was just really taken aback by how, I don't know, I I don't want to say easily it seemed to come to you in the poems, but how like, how well done it was, was just very cool to me. So that was something I really appreciated in your work. Oh, thank you for saying, saying that, that I really appreciate uh, people who read my, my poetry very carefully. And of course, you know, like I, I'm like anybody else. I, I struggled for a long time in my twenties trying to, to um, uh, come up with my voice. And I don't even think mm-hmm. I found my voice till I was, maybe 31. And then I had to start writing my whole book again. I, like I, I pu- <laughs> didn't publish, but I, I wrote a master's thesis called In the Gallery of Missing Persons. And any pr- young poet listening to this in their 20s can search that up and find it <laughs> on the internet. And you can see just how far I've come as a poet, because uh, I always was very good with imagery, but I was writing very short imagistic poems and there were, mm. they were just not quite there. And I had really uh, uh, solid creative writing instructors from uh, Concordia University who really pushed me to write better. And I couldn't at the time. And I remember uh, leaving Montreal and thinking that I was a failure as a poet. And I just spent all this money on this uh, master's degree. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I really felt like I had failed. Uh, but that was a, a great, uh, <laughs> that was a great life lesson because I left poetry i didn't write poetry for about eight months and then i came back to it and uh i realized you know i've been trying to write for other people and then i began to try to write poems for myself and be a little more relaxed not worry if this is going to be a chat book or you know Mm. is am i gonna i don't know you know 
have are people going to want to date me because I write poems? The ridiculous things you think when you're <laughs> in your twenties, you know. Um, and I began to write really well. And uh, then, of course, I met Silas White at Nightwood Editions, who waved the carrot, in, you know, at me, which was, we don't, we won't do the book that you've sent us because it's not publishable, but we will do a book with you when you're ready. And of course, after hearing that, I just worked hard, you know, harder than I'd ever worked before and uh, came up with my first book, Bonfires. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing too, how having somebody believe in your work like that can really shift it and motivate you. Absolutely. Um, 100%. Yeah. And, and the question I wanted to ask too, I mean, again, it's a selfish Mm -hmm. question just given where I'm at as a writer, but um, you know, you talked about not really finding your voice as a writer until even after uh, grad school. And uh, I'm wondering like what, what, helped you find your voice what tips would you give somebody seeking out their style and, and their okay. voice as a poet? well one of the things you need for sure is community and community can be just a small group of friends that are trying to do the same thing as yourself i think that's absolutely important i think writing um sorry reading deeply not mm. just what's happening in canada you know knowing what are the popular presses and the popular uh poets of the particular season that's always important but knowing you know reading even more deeply like read the americans read uh british authors read just read 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 you know and so i started reading much more wild uh widely in my in my 20s i i came to you know in my or in my 30s in my 20s i was really into um patrick lane and gwen McEwen. uh really, really obsessed with Gwendolyn McEwen's uh, poetry. And then I moved in my 30s to Larry Levis and Phil Levine and a guy named Dave Smith became very important to me. Um, And uh, Lucia Perillo, another American poet, became really important to me. And I began to write more like longer poems for sure. You know, I Mm. had been writing these really short nuggets, image nuggets. And then I began to write the long poem. And, uh, and I think the more you read, it's just going to, uh, you're going to process all that reading and it's going to come out in, in strange, marvelous ways, no matter what. So I've been writing now for 35 years and, um, Every time I meet poets in their 20s that have published a book and, and, you know, they're worried about, you know, uh, if they're any good, I'm like, you're so much better than I was uh, at (laughs) at your age, you know, like it's unbelievable to me. So they, I think people just need to keep their nose down and just write Uh, and every Mm. so often look up every 10 years, look up and, and you'll see the developmental changes and it's always for the best, always. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that's really good advice. And like, honestly, uh, I I also went to grad school. I did not do it for creative writing. I did English. But right. Sure. Um, what what I found very freeing after I finished grad school was mm. the ability to assign myself readings. Uh, now, not in like a structured sense, but literally just pick what I was reading. Because when you're in grad school, there's no time to read for fun. It it felt right. like anyway. Um, and so for me to be able to read more has definitely helped me realize the people that I was sort of idealizing their work, you know, six or seven years ago when I started writing are people now where if I were writing like them, I don't know that I'd be super stoked about what I was putting out. So I, I find that interesting too. Um, but one of the other things you mentioned was, you know, looking back at, your past work and and people Mm -hmm. in their 20s now writing and publishing and that sort of thing um when you look back at like your first book Mm -hmm. and you know we've talked a little bit about how you feel you've come a long way uh in your writing life you know how do you feel about your first book now oh i've got it has a special place in my heart but i i rarely read poems from it It, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting you know it's it's i don't think it's i i think it's my weakest book in a lot of ways though there are strong poems in it. Uh, certainly, if I ever put together a selected, I would probably pull five poems uh, from that book that I know are strong. 
solid poems. Um, but the irony, of course, is that's the only book that that was up for for awards. You know, it, it was up for <laughs> the the Gerald Lampert Award for best first book of poetry, and and my friend Autumn Getty won for that award, and uh, which was nice. We were both published with Nightwood the same time. Uh, and it was uh, had won the CAA Jack Chalmers Poetry Award for Poetry in Canada. And I got flown out to Vancouver and I met Douglas Copeland and Stuart McLean and lots of pictures were taken. I sold about 80 books. And then I went <laughs> right back to my regular life as a high school teacher and, and staring at the blank page of my second manuscript, you know, like I had to write a, a second book. And, and so... That was a really great learning lesson for me early on that awards rarely really mean anything, you know, in terms, it was nice for the boost of confidence um, early on that, that, I, that, that attention came to me. Um, but I do think I'm a much better writer uh, now for sure, for sure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I always ask that sort of question because I find myself, you know, looking back at like, and as I say, I'm new to writing. So for somebody yeah. who's been writing much longer than me, I can only imagine it's an amplified experience, but like to mm -hmm. look back, you know, six or seven years ago at like some of the first poems I wrote, it's difficult. And, uh, yes. you know, I think, I, I, th I think of, um, I was speaking in a class a week or two ago and I mentioned this too, but Rob Taylor, who might be listening to this, has right. a poem. Um, I'm going to butcher the title. It is To and Through Al Purdy, but um, it, it basically talks about on realizing uh, everybody has written their fair share of bad poems. And yes. uh, and that helps me when I when I think of this sort of thing and, and look back. But um, yeah, do you ever go through like really early drafts of your work and, and reflect on them at all? I don't really go through early drafts of my work anymore. Uh, I do remember some good advice that was given to me early, early on, which was basically, um, you know, if you have to write a bad book to write a good book, then write the bad book. Like, just mm. get those poems out and, and away from you. <laughs> you know, if you have to write um, yeah, to learn to fail, you know, like that's something you, all writers need to learn is learn when a poem is not working. Uh, when to let it go and, and just start something fresh. Um, you know, it was it was hard. I, I did a master's thesis, which was a poetry collection, and I, I defended that master's thesis. And I knew, you know, it would never be published as a book because it wasn't it wasn't good enough yet. It was, uh, and so I left it for a year and a half, and then I threw out half of it, and then the other half I, I rewrote all those poems, and mm. then I wrote fresh poems and that became the sort of impetus for bonfires uh, you know that book was called going out like a candle when i submitted it and by the time we were done with it it went from going out like a candle to bonfires on the road to nowhere to bonfires so it just shows hmm. you you know good editors having good friends who are reading interesting people and who are them themselves excellent poets so i'm thinking of people like paul vermeersh very early on accepted me as uh, a brother poet uh, before I had even written, you know, half of my mm. manuscript yet. And that, and he had already had a book out and that was just tremendously important to me that, that friendship. Yeah. And I do need a question from you. So I'm going to ask yeah. you for a question after this one, because I do have okay. one last question, which is you're, you're talking here about community and, and we've mentioned it a couple times. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's really important to a writer to know that there are other people doing what you're doing, but often it feels very isolating, you know, the act of writing. Um, mm -hmm. It's just you in a, in a piece of paper or a computer. So um, what are your tips for kind of finding community as a writer? Oh my goodness. I don't know <laughs> if I'm the best one to answer that question. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a writer here in Kitchener, um, Ontario. You know, Tennis McDonald lives in Waterloo, very close to me, but we rarely see each other unless there's a reading happening at uh, Laurier, for instance, University of Laurier. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of community here in Kitchener-Waterloo. So I end up having to go to Toronto to to readings. I, I right. just recently saw Shane Nielsen and Jim Johnstone read 
uh, at an event at Knife Fork Book in, uh, in Toronto. And, and so I always, going into readings, it's always been important, touching base with my fellow poets, even for, you know, as much as people say, oh, poetry readings, you know, and roll their eyes. Uh, I think it's important to to see that other people take this seriously as you do and and talking about what new books you're reading and uh, all of that, that's always tremendously important. Um, so those are the only tips I really have. I, I don't know if I have any others. I mean, find a mentor. And if you can't find a mentor, make uh, an older poet, a deceased poet, your mentor. You know, I... I <laughs> I feel like you should be learning something at all times. Yeah. Um, you know, so for me, Philip Levine was an important mentor, even though I never spoke to him for my book, Winter Cranes, for instance. That book is very much meant to feel like uh, one of the small uh, books of poems that Philip Levine put out in the late 70s, early 80s. I love those books. And I love that that feel of those, you know, being a slight volume, but really powerfully written or you know like the last two books you could say for a deep fake serenade and for um midlife action figure i could say you know like bob hickok's been really important and i i trade emails with him every so often uh dean young who i i don't know he's been an important mentor in his book of essays again the art of recklessness was really important in the the sort of uh, learning to to write the way i have in these last two books Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely feel like that that sense of community is like very important and useful. And, and honestly, that's a big reason I started the podcast was just to talk yeah. to poets. Um, but yeah, um, speaking of the podcast, I'm going to have to do another episode of this at some point. So I'm going to need a question from you, Chris, to ask okay. my next guest without knowing who they're going to be. Um. Well, I don't know if I have a question so much as, you know, that theme or that sort of meme that was going around on Twitter, you know, how it started and how it's going. Maybe we can make a question of that, you know, like uh, when poets look at how they they started writing and where they are now, what do you think they believe is the biggest changes um, that oh. have uh, a you know, that have happened to them developmentally. So perhaps we can make a question out of that somehow. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I'll, I'll try and make a question out of it now because Chris, I do this mean thing where I turn the question around and ask you now. Okay, um, sure. so, <laughs> so when you look at how you started writing, yeah. what are the biggest changes now? Okay. So I went from, from writing sort of like this sort of modernist imagistic uh, style of writing to writing really sort of earnest, <laughs> almost too earnest, narrative, <laughs> lyrical, meditational poems. You know, the the type of poet, uh, you know, who I really looked up to here in Canada uh, would be someone like uh, Russell Thornton. That guy is just a master, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I remember thinking, reading House of Rain and going, oh my God, this is amazing. I want to write, be able to write like this. So I was writing... Uh, that style of poetry. And then of course I've moved into this sort of lightly surreal territory. Now I think that's the best way to describe it, even though I, I don't know if I'm really a surrealist, um, but it's more fun. It's just much more fun now that I'm older and it's, it's freeing. It feels easier now than it ever has before, even though it's still not easy. Um, hmm. It is easier. Uh, and I, I think you said earlier, you feel like these poems just are sort of coming through me, like almost like from being born whole or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel, really feel like that. You know, I don't do a lot of editing. I edit as I go and I write yeah. very quickly now. I, I'm less intentional and more, more uh, improvisational in my writing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that that does sound like a very uh, freeing shift. Like, I, I feel like sure. that would make writing a lot easier to be less critical and to be improvisational as you're writing. I feel like is um, a much more, yeah, like you said, a fun way to write. Uh, right. That that sounds fun. Um, yeah. Chris, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Before I let you go, um, do you have one last piece that you could read for us to close things out? 
Yes, absolutely. I thought I'd read you the title um, poem, which awesome. begins the collection, and it's called Deep Fake Serenade. It kind of riffs on Romeo and Juliet. Uh, so here we go. Deep Fake Serenade. Children's laughter is like a spray of confetti without the sweep of the broom afterwards. Bodies are wiring. Love is the circuit. Houses are constructed without balconies, lessening the risk of serenades and therefore early deaths. Inside every one of us is a deep fake, a holy ghost. Folk tales led me to believe people find gold only to lose it all the time. Each kiss is 14 carat. How did I become exiled in the land of golden arches? To push desire beyond the outwardness of roses is to feel thorns. I'm sorry to be serenading you like this in a courtyard. Not a courtyard, but at night. Maybe not night either, though it's true we just met. Forgive me, I killed your cousin and your parents hate mine. Don't think I wasn't shocked to discover after climbing this wall of air between us, our elopement is a no-go. Turns out our stars are not crossed so much as shining in separate hemispheres. Well, here is to serenading exquisite strangers anyways. Thank you for sealing my fate. Now let us go before the guards make their final rounds. Sadly, we all die in the final act. There we go. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been really cool to talk to you. I feel like I often talk to new and emerging writers and you're still putting really new, important work out. And it's very cool to hear from somebody who's like in the middle of, you know, transitioning into a new style and at the same time has a lot of experiences that I honestly will take a lot away from from chatting with you. So thank you very much for sharing your time with me today. No problem, Andrew. And thank you so much for having me on your uh, podcast. Okay, so there you have it. That was me chatting with Chris Banks. Chris, thank you so much for your time. I Look, I really enjoyed that interview. Um, for a number of reasons, but for me, it always means the world when somebody who's writing in a way that I want to write takes the time to sit down with me. Um, that's exactly what happened on the day that I sat down with Chris. This is a week or two later now, and I'm sitting down to record this outro, and I haven't stopped thinking about what we talked about. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with Chris. I'm excited to dig into more of his work, and uh, it just meant the world. So thank you, Chris, and um, I hope that you'll come back some point in the future to talk more about poems. Um, if you want to make this official, if you like what you're hearing on Page Right, it's super easy, we can do that. All you have to do is subscribe. You can do that by hitting the subscribe button in whatever app you're listening to this on. Um, should be on pretty much all the platforms at this point. If not, let me know and I've probably messed up. Um, but yeah, you can also rate and review the show, which is really important because it helps people who don't currently know the poets I talk to, to find out about them and access their work, which as you know, is the ultimate goal of what I do here when I sit down to record this show. Um, so that means the world whenever somebody does that. Um, it's, it's just fantastic. Um, but yeah, I don't really have much else to share. No real announcements right now. I have been reading a ton on the trip that I was on, and I have a bunch of guests in mind, but I haven't reached out to any yet, so it might be a little bit before the next episode. Um, in the meantime, go back, listen to some of the older stuff, um, and I will be back with you very soon. Without much else to say, my name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, and this, of course, this has been Page Fright.